time tonight. We know that the purpose of the book was John chapter 20, verse 31, that said, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And God went to great lengths to reach the pagans of his day. We talked about this last week, how he used the wording that the Gnostics of the day would use. Like in the beginning, uh, Arche in the Greek, and Logos, and Zoe for life, and Anthropon for man, and Cheris, and all these words that they used uh, that was meant to reach out to those who didn't know Christ that were not Jews. Now, with that, God also, he went to great lengths to reach out uh, to us. He endured much. We already know that, the cross. But if you signed up for a job and they told you at the beginning of the job that people will come by your desk and they will insult you, uh, they will hurl insults uh, towards you. If you were married, they would say bad things. If you were a guy about your wife, Uh, they would say bad things about your children, about your friends. If somebody was telling you that's your job, would you sign up for that? And as you go through the scriptures, a lot of these are in John. Jesus had to endure much. He was thought that to be out of his mind. People said, you are out of your mind in Mark chapter 3, verses 21 and 31. He was not believed by his own family. Uh, They also thought that he was insane, John chapter 7, verse 5. He was called a deceiver in John chapter 7, verse 12. Many of his followers deserted him in John chapter 6, verse 66. He turned off many of the Jews who began to trust in him. That's also in the book of John. Uh, I, I think I got rid of the verse that that applies to. And also, he was even... Um, Oh, it's John chapter 8, verse 30, it should be. It says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They responded to him by saying, we've always been free. We are children of Abraham. And by the time they got done, in verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple guard. So he started out... And he had all these followers, the Jews, and by the end of his conversation there, they wanted to kill him when it was all done. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. He was called demon-possessed in John chapter 8, verse 49. I already mentioned he was called crazy and insane, and he allowed a woman named Mary to break an alabaster box over his head and his feet, and she wiped it with her hair, And in the circles that he was running uh, with, they would have considered that a proposition and he would have been responding in the affirmative. And that's why they said, doesn't this man know what kind of woman she is? And then he was crucified by the Jews and the Romans and to hang on a tree that, of course, in the Old Testament was considered a curse. And so that's just the recordings in writing that we have that Jesus endured verbally and also physically from those who were around him. And I don't know how much you have to endure in your Christian life, but it probably doesn't even compare uh, to what he had to go through. And we're going to go through several things here. We have them listed for you. God is, in John chapter 1, these are prepositional statements about Jesus. Is is a preposition. Is and with. And these words that we use, these connective words, that is how we have God described to us in his word. And so when God wants to reveal himself, he does it through these prepositional statements. For instance, God is love. God is kind. God is strong. God is all-knowing. And so that's how we are able to understand God. But that is not sufficient for us to really grasp who he is. But Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. That is letter A there. And you can write that in. And this references back to Genesis 1.1, as I said last week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. And it's meant to make that connection. Secondly, Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the Word was God. Thirdly, Jesus is life and light. In him was life, verse 4, and that life was the light of men. In other words, in him there is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And then the letter D there, Jesus is flesh. And this was also meant to speak against what the Gnostics thought, that all material that we can see and touch, it is all evil. But in the first four verses, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Word, and Jesus became flesh. In verse 14 of John, the chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he will maintain that flesh for all of eternity. That's what he took on when he became incarnate. Now, this idea of these prepositional statements, how we understand God, we need to make sure that we don't go around as Christians saying that we fully understand who God is according to his word because we don't. Uh, I've mentioned this from the pulpit a couple of times, this idea of the painter Pablo Picasso. And when he would paint, in his early years when he would paint, it would be very symmetrical. It would look just wonderful. But as he got older, and he lived into his 90s, as he got older, the way that he understood God and the world around him, he understood God along with this um, idea of um, liberal theology. God is fragmented. We can't really understand who he is. And he was kind of buying into that. This is reflected in a movie by Francis Schaeffer. And he, he depicts that. I want to show you a picture I got this. Let me ask you, could you live in a place like that? Do you see that? I mean, the stairs are not where they're supposed to be, and it's like there's windows and things, and the, the, it's just disjointed. Now, that's he painted several pictures, but the next one I want to show you, if I can get it here. <laughs> It won't let me go up. Hold on. Well. It's not let me scroll through here. Just a second. There we go. Okay, now this will give you an idea of when he was young. He painted a self-portrait. Now this is his self-portrait. It's very symmetrical. He looks at the world as the rest of us do. But when he got older, he painted another picture of himself. This is the picture of himself when he gets older. And you can see that the eyes are different it's not symmetrical, kind of an ear over here, and what's going on. And then the next one, <laughs> some of these are just bizarre. This is his picture. Now, this is all due to his understanding of who God was, and he was buying into a false concept that we can't know God because he is fragmented. And that's why he would fragment his paintings. The only reason I show you this is because people have a lot of misunderstandings of who God is. And we want to make sure God revealed himself to us in an orderly fashion. Now, this is uh, the last one I'm going to show you. This is a woman playing a guitar. I don't know if you can see that. But this was all done when he was older. And so he bought into the liberal, uh, liberal theology movement that was pervasive at the time and that led a bunch of people away from God it got into neo-orthodox theology and I'm not going to get too much into that but we want to make sure that our view of God is based on scripture that he is infinite and he's not just these prepositional statements he's much bigger than that and we can't add to what he says he is we just understand him and be content with that the people that would do things like 
this man, Pablo Picasso, they weren't content and they were looking for other answers, but God doesn't always provide for us these other answers. All we know is that Jesus is God, he is the word, and we're supposed to be content with that and tell others just exactly who he claims to be. Now secondly, well first we had God is, now we have John was. Now John was a witness, he was a herald, and he was a forerunner. In John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is referring to John the Baptist, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Uh, In Scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, He was a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. In Malachi, it was prophesied that a messenger would go before the Messiah. It says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, it says, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. So Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah who was prophesied to come in Malachi chapter 3. I have a question for you. Is Jesus coming back again? I believe he is. Do you think Elijah will show up before he comes? And why? Anybody want to take a guess? It's okay. You can guess. Because he didn't die? That's good. That could be the case. Okay, so nobody wants to jump in. You know, there's two things at play here. One of them is, when God created the heavens and the earth, did he create it in such a way that it could have been eternal? He did. But what happened? It fell. Now, as far as our universe is concerned, if you listen to scientists, the universe is just, it keeps on expanding. It actually creates the space as it expands. And so God created it to be eternal. He created human beings to be eternal, but they blew it. So then started the decay of the universe, the decay of our bodies. We don't live as long as seven, eight, nine hundred years anymore, right? So when he came this next time, do you think that God set it up in case Israel would have received the Messiah? He would have fulfilled the prophecy having John there as the substitute for Elijah. Did he set it up that way just in case they received them? Now, see, this is kind of bending your mind a little bit, huh? God set it up to where if they received him, it would have been fine to give them the opportunity. Now, he knew that it wasn't going to take place, but he still set it up that way. Now, I don't know what he would have done with sin from that point, but he already knew that they weren't going to accept him. And so when it comes to Elijah as well, I believe the actual physical Elijah will show up because sometimes in Scripture there are double meanings on some of the information that God gives to us. Like, for instance, the king of Tyre. He was a real king, but who else was he depicted in Scripture? Lucifer, that's right. And so he had a double meaning for the king of Tyre, and he could have been talking about the physical king, but also it appears that it's referring to Satan himself, the one who said, I will be like the most high, I will sit on the sides of the north. And he he just goes on a rant like that. And so this idea that John the Baptist was the forerunner, I believe God set it up that way just in case they accepted him. I don't know what he would have done with the sin issue I would just leave that for God to answer when he comes back. But this idea, when it comes to the future, I believe, indeed, Elijah will come back and he will be a forerunner. Uh, There are two prophets that show up in the book of Revelation, and there's speculation as to who those two prophets might be. Anybody want to say who those two prophets might be? 
who they've speculated they might be? Moses and Elijah, or Moses, or excuse me, Elijah and who else? Or Enoch and Moses. We don't know who it's going to be, but it's definite that two prophets are going to show up. That's right. To prepare the way of the Lord. John simply states that Jesus was the light in John chapter 1 verse 7. That's A there. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. This is, this is what John did. He was the messenger and this is what he was stating. John wanted the people to believe in the light. In John chapter 1 verse 7, the second half it says, so that through him all men might believe. And then thirdly, John was not the light because he was asked if he was. He himself was not the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And D there, Jesus made the world. This is the four statements that John wants to communicate to those people who are out there. In John chapter 1 verse 10, he was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. So first we have God is, and then we had John was, and thirdly, we can be. Uh, We can be a child of God. In John chapter 1, if you look at your Bibles, if you haven't opened, verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, of course, we know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it requires belief. Also, Romans 10.9 and 10, most of you could probably quote that, about confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so we, that is how we become children of God. Also, Acts chapter 16, verses Uh, 30 and 31 this deals with the Philippian jailer and uh, he met uh, the guys in prison who he thought were uh, had escaped because of the earthquake that was there and he says sirs what must I do to be saved he's talking to Paul there and he says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and then the last one is Matthew chapter 10 verse 32 through 33 If we choose to deny Christ, he will deny us before our Father in heaven, and there is no belief for that person. That person is really a child of the enemy, the child of Satan. But if you choose to believe, then we become a child of God. There are only two types of children. There are the children of God, and there are the children of this world, or the children of the devil, or the children of the enemy. It is false to say, as you might hear, that we are all children of God. We are not all children of God. First John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Anybody who has not accepted Christ is part of the world and it's under the control of the evil one. Therefore, they are not a child of God. There's two things that declare somebody is a child of God. The first one is obedience. And 1 John 3.10 says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. And secondly, love. 1 John 3.10, second half says, Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. 1 John 5.2 says, This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. Patty's been reading a book. What, what's the name of that book about the lies? Lies Women Believe. And she was talking to me about it. And she said uh, one of the lies that women believe is that their children are saved when they're not saved. Maybe they went forward once and they're not walking with the Lord and they're separate from the church, from Christ, because that's where Christ uh, dwells in um, fellowship with the body is when they're all together not that he doesn't have fellowship with us but that's where he chooses that's his bride that's where he chooses to place his spirit and his direction and the the ones who carry the word of God to the world and so if somebody 
is keeping the commands of God. I mean, what are the commands of God? What is the work of God? To believe on the one whom he has sent. That is the work of God. So if you believe, that belief is going to translate into obedience. Remember I said from the pulpit a couple of uh, Sundays ago that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that if you believe, you will be obedient. If you are not obedient, you do not believe. Now that is a tough one because I don't know about you guys, but I look at myself and I go, I'm not 100% obedient. And so it causes me to fear a little bit like, I don't want to be left behind, you know, but I know that there is no condemnation. Perfect love casts out fear. I understand what the scripture says. But when you get to these passages, you go, well, a Christian is going to be obedient and a Christian is going to love. Now, if a Christian, a Christian can be caught in a sin. For instance, Galatians says that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual restore a person who is caught in a sin. And so you can be a believer and caught in a sin and a righteous man will fall seven times and seven times he'll get back up and he'll be obedient. But the one who says, yeah, I believe in God, but they refuse to be obedient, we shouldn't believe that that individual has any evidence or they should have any assurance that they are in fact saved. If they are not in fellowship with the body, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, you're supposed to be in fellowship. Do not forsake the gathering together of other brothers as is the habit of some and all the more as you see the day approaching. And in uh, 1 John, there are several verses in 1 John that talk about how we can know that we are saved and it, there's like 18 different things that we went through with the youth that God just spells it out in there. So we want to make sure that we're not giving somebody false hope. If somebody is not in fellowship, we need to be the ones to encourage them. Get back into fellowship. Do what you know to be right and that will be evidence that you are in fact saved because the works do not save us. But to produce fruit, Fruit is produced without any effort on our part. God does it in us. Just like a fruit tree doesn't strain to produce the fruit, neither will we. If we are in fellowship, the fruit will be a natural byproduct of us being in fellowship with the body. So no matter what happens to us, no matter where we go in the years ahead, we always want to make sure that we're being obedient to Christ, that we're following what his word says, that we are clinging to the belief, the hope, that he is the one who will save us. It's those two things that scripture spells out for us. Now, this idea of the one and only, and this is a reference to deity again. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only. If uh, you see it in your Bible, one and only is capitalized, which means it's a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So chapter 1 is like a treatise on the deity of Christ. There's no mistaking who he is. Now with this, we have the law and we have grace, and we have truth that were just mentioned. The law, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament law, but there was the ceremonial law that had to be followed. Uh, priests especially, they had to take baths, and they had to cleanse themselves repeatedly over and over, and they couldn't touch a dead body, and they couldn't become unclean before ministering before the Lord, and even the per- the people who were copying the text of the Old Testament, the Torah, they had to take baths. They could not be interrupted by the king. And there was just a lot of things that they had to go through. They had certain diets that they had to follow. Uh, Vegetables were okay, but there were a lot of unclean animals that they could not eat. A gnat was the smallest of the unclean animals. And if they got a gnat in their food, they were to take that thing out. And chances are, if they were a devout Jew, they would throw out the whole bowl of soup or whatever it was if they found a little gnat. And a camel was the biggest of all unclean animals. And the requirement was 
that if it chewed the cud and it had a split hoof, then it was clean. But if it didn't have a split hoof or if it didn't chew the cud, if both of those things weren't present, only one of them was, then you couldn't eat it. For instance, you couldn't eat rabbit because rabbit, it chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. You'd also have to avoid things like shellfish. You couldn't eat lobster. You couldn't have crab. You couldn't have uh, shrimp. All of those things were off the menu for you if you were a kosher Jew. You couldn't eat of those things. And, of course, we know that in Acts chapter 10 and 11 where Peter was there and the sheet came down and had all these unclean animals and things on it, Peter said, I'm not going to eat after the Lord said, pick up and eat, take up and eat. Because goes, far be it from me, I've never eaten anything unclean. After that, he could eat whatever he wanted to. Everything had become clean. Uh, those of you who have gone over to Cambodia, you can eat anything over there. Or China. You can eat anything. Did you hear about all the dogs, the hundreds of dogs that were just saved from over in China that they were being raised to eat over there? They saved them all. And so we are allowed to eat anything uh, if we have a taste for it. But back in the Old Testament, that was not the case. You had to follow certain things and you couldn't work on the Sabbath. And they came up with additional rules about what you could do and what you could not do. And they were running into dilemmas. Uh, Things that the Jews would do is they didn't want to walk very far because it would be constituted as work. And so what they'd do around the old city of Jerusalem is they'd take this rope and they'd expand this rope far out from the area of the old city of Jerusalem so they could walk farther beyond the city walls of Jerusalem and still it would not be considered work as long as they were inside the rope. Of course, the rope kept on expanding and expanding and expanding so they could break their own rules that they had set up. And that's what the Jews were doing and that's what Jesus Christ condemned them for. And so they had this law, just following the law itself. If you had a red rash on your arm or something and that rash wasn't going away and if it looked kind of funny you had to go show it to the priest and the priest would look at it and he'd wait a week and he'd look at it again and he'd wait another week and if it was getting white scaly skin he would declare you unclean and sometimes you'd have to go outside of the camp and if you had leprosy that was it you were cast out of the camp and you had to live outside and people would come minister to you if you just had a skin disease or if you had mold inside of your house they would come to your house and the priest would look at your house and see if you had mold there and then he would require you to take it all out and then he'd go back and he would inspect it he was like the building inspector too and if it was on your clothes if you had mold somewhere the priest had to look at it I mean it was just an arduous onerous thing to follow the law in the Old Testament and that's what the law was the law was called and the word in the Greek is a uh, pedagogue or a pedagogos is what it was called and that was a slave who was in charge of a master's son and from the time the child was weaned that slave had to be with that child 24 hours a day and was responsible to get that child. He was like a a custodial um, parent uh, for that child. And whether that child was sleeping or awake, the slave was always supposed to be there. And usually it was an older gentleman inside of the house. You couldn't call him a gentleman. He was actually a slave inside the household. And the wealthy father would put him in charge. And if anything happened to that son, that pedagogos would be in trouble. And so they would uh, be diligent in doing that. And they would raise the son for about 11 or 12 years once they got beyond puberty. And again, it was 24 hours a day. They would take him to school. They would take him to sports. And uh, by extension, sometimes that pedagogos would learn and become educated too because they would accompany the child. And because of that, sometimes they gained a little more stature in the community because of what they would do. God compares that pedagogos to the law. Could you imagine somebody being in the same room with you all the time making sure you did the right thing and if you got out of line they would be the one disciplining you they would be the one making sure you ate right you spoke right you were respectful all the time being there anybody go to a catholic school did you ever get hit with a ruler yes did you you were disobedient huh (laughs) 
so Sister Mary would take wax. Right? That was her man. <laughs> well, it would be like having Sister Mary over you all of the time, and that's what the law was. And the problem with that law is it put everybody under a curse because nobody could ever keep the law fully. You were constantly going and bringing sacrifices to the temple. If you did something wrong, if you sinned, you were supposed to do that. Even if you didn't sin, you were told, you better go do this because you probably sinned anyhow. And Jesus came along, for instance, like adultery. He said, if you've committed adultery in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder. And so there's so many reasons why somebody might commit a sin. Even Job would sacrifice for his children just in case they committed a sin. So you had to sacrifice animals left and right all the time, and you had to tithe on any of your increase. The mint dill and cumin, remember the Jews were uh, really meticulous about even their spices that they got. They would count out a tenth of their spices, and they would put it in little containers, and they would take that to the temple. That's what they would do. And so, again, this is an onerous thing to be under. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In verse 24 of chapter 3, it says, So the law was put in charge, and that word put in charge, the law was put in charge, that's where you have the Greek word pedagogos or pedagogue that is in there put us in it was put in charge to lead us to christ that we might be justified by faith so it was almost a taskmaster it was leading you to the cross showing you that you are not perfect and there's still no remedy for your sin all that could be done is it could cover your sin the atonement was just a covering christ came with grace and truth and so instead of just being a covering god removes the sin as far as the east is from the west, and with that, the guilt goes. In the Old Testament, the guilt never went away. In the New Testament, Christ gives us his grace and truth. Grace as opposed to condemnation and judgment. Truth as opposed to falsehood, because there is much falsehood. Christ shows up, he says, here's the grace of God, and this is the truth. You can trust it. Jesus is, of course, the way, the truth, and the life. And so this grace, it's goodwill, loving kindness, unmerited favor, it's joy, it's pleasure, it's delight. <clears throat> and also the truth, uh, it's used 20 times in the Gospel of John. It's opposed to what is false. And for those who come under the grace and truth, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And so if you're under the covenant that Jesus set up, then we're we're sitting pretty as far as salvation is concerned in all of eternity. Then we go to the testimony of John the Baptist. I'm going to read this, John chapter 1, verse 19. It tells us this was, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now Pharisees, and now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptized with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, 
where John was baptizing. So John is called to be a witness. Now, how many witnesses were needed to establish an issue in a court of law? Two or three, and they had to be reliable witnesses, right? Now, you have the list there, I think, on your outline. How many witnesses are there for Christ? That Christ is the Messiah and he is who he says he is. How many have, do you count there on your list? Do you have them? Five. John the Baptist, the scriptures, Jesus himself, the spirit of God, the apostles and the prophets. Now in a court of law, could you be your own witness? You can, but are you considered a reliable witness? You're not, is Jesus, his own witness, according to, let me read it. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. Why is his testimony valid? He's God. (laughs) You know, so if he's God and he says something has taken place, well, his own testimony is valid. Ours wouldn't necessarily be valid, but there's at least five that are giving testimony that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate. And so in a court of law, if the Pharisees did not believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the one at creation, he has five different listings here. Now also, you have the apostles, which were called to be witnesses. And this is in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, the apostles and the prophets. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so he has a multitude of witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it mentions and it's the resurrection chapter, it mentions all the apostles as being witnesses, and it refers to Paul as one being abnormally born, and then there's a number of witnesses in addition to those guys who were there. Do you guys know the number of witnesses that were there? 500 witnesses. So how many people would you need to convict Jesus of being the Messiah? two or three how many does he have hundreds and these are just the ones that we know about these aren't the ones that were also his disciples that bore testimony of who he was as well so it's kind of a slam dunk and that's what john was meant to do to be a witness and to testify as to who jesus was so he was asked seven questions two of them he was asked twice are you the christ The question is implied from the text. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Why do you baptize? Who are you? That's the one he asked. They asked twice. And what do you say about yourself? And so they were pelting him with these questions. And these are just the ones we have recorded. Apparently he wasn't answering quick enough for them. And so he plainly said, I'm not the Christ. And they go, well, who are you? What is the deal with that? Why would they ask if he was the Christ? Any of you guys want to take a guess why they would say, are you the Christ? Why? Is there a prophecy that the Christ would come? Well, John the Baptist, yeah, John the Baptist wasn't doing any miracles, but they're asking John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Why would they be asking him if he's the Christ? Aren't there scriptures that say the Christ is going to show up? What's that? Well, yeah, they, they certainly were putting him to the test. But can you guys think of an Old Testament scripture that says, the Christ is coming? I think it's right there on your sheet, right? <laughs> Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 7.14. Let me read uh, these verses for you. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Um, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In Zechariah 9, 9, of course, that was the triumphal entry that is talked about in the Old Testament. Those are just four scriptures that the Messiah would be showing up. And so these Pharisees, they reckon John to be a prophet. And so they're trying to figure out, well, are you not just a prophet? Are you the Christ? And so that's why they're questioning him. Then they asked, are you Elijah? Now, we already know that John the Baptist is Elijah, but he didn't believe he was. But Christ said... If you can accept it, this is Elijah who was to come. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. That's a hint that Elijah will actually show up because when he does, everything will eventually be restored. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, See, I will send a prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so they're asking him, are you Elijah? And he says, no, he doesn't think he is. But Jesus, in fact, says that he is. And um, the third one there, are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses told the people that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And so they were looking for all three. They were looking for the Christ, they were looking for Elijah, and they were looking for the prophet because they knew their scripture. The evidence was just so, the word is ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And they chose not to believe. They chose to close off to the idea that Jesus was going to be the Messiah and John was the forerunner. Now going on, uh, B there, John was, this, we already recognize what he wasn't, but we're going to recognize what he was. He was a voice. Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And he quoted that and said, I am a voice calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. He was also the greatest prophet that had ever lived up to that time. Because Jesus, of course, is the greatest prophet. In Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women... There is no one greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Are you guys greater than John the Baptist? (laughs) The least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because you get all the benefits of belonging to the church. You know, John is an Old Testament prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, although he's mentioned in the New Testament. And the New Testament, every one of you in here is part of a kingdom of priests to God. John was just the prophet. You are a kingdom of priests. You are going to be the shiny ones. Not that he's not, but what you will accomplish for God in the future is just huge, in the, at least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. What a promise. That's great. So he is a voice. He is the greatest prophet. And he was Elijah. Matthew 17, verse 12 says, But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. This is Jesus talking. But have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So in this passage here, we know that Jesus meant that John the Baptist was the Elijah, the forerunner that was to come. Sixth, the baptism of Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant, or this is the one I meant when I said... A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And that was his whole purpose for baptizing. 
Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God. And so Jesus was called by him. The Lamb of God. If somebody is called the Lamb of God and you are a Jew, what do you think of? There's one event. Passover. Because you had to take the lamb. You had to put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. You had to eat the lamb. You had to consume the whole thing. And if you didn't, it was to become a burnt offering. Now, with that is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they take two goats. And uh, I think, I forget how they choose the one. I think it's a casting of lots. But anyhow, one goat is allowed to go into the desert. And there would be several uh, areas where they would see this. They would put the sin, they'd transfer it. The high priest would, would put his hand on the head of the goat. And the goat was allowed to take off and just go into the wilderness. The other goat was the one who was sacrificed. The priest would lay his hand on that and the sins are supposedly transferred and then that goat is sacrificed. But this idea of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it prevents the angel of death from visiting us. Anyone under the covering of the blood in the house is covered by the angel of death. Anyone who is covered by the blood of the Lamb in the New Testament is covered from the angel of death. There is no judgment to come. We have passed from death to life because of that. So that's why John's really excited. This is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so he's stoked at this point. And Jesus' identity was verified, in fact, by John. We've already seen that testimony. Then we have the four disciples mentioned. This is moving really quickly here. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw jesus passing by he said look the lamb of god when the two disciples heard him say this they followed jesus turning around jesus saw them following and asked what do you want they said rabbi which means teacher where are you staying come he replied and you will see so they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him it was about the 10th hour andrew simon peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town Abbasada. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? What city would you pick? What suburb would you pick in San Diego to say that same? What? Logan Heights. Can anything good come from Logan Heights? Would you say La Jolla? Can anything good from, come from La Jolla? Probably not. You know, there are depressed parts of town. What's that? Lakeside. Yeah, can anything good come from Lakeside? Isn't that the truth? Going on. What verse did I leave off in there? Oh, it's um, 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. And then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. So what do we know from this first chapter and from this study? We know the purpose of the book. We know that God went to some effort to reach the pagans and the Jews. That God is 
Jesus, the creator, light and life and was made flesh. We know that John the Baptist was the forerunner, the herald, the voice, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was not the Christ. He was not Elijah's. Elijah, at least he didn't think so, or the prophet. Uh, we can be children of God uh, through belief and confession in Jesus. Not all are children of God. Children of God are obedient and have love. The law came through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a new covenant. There's the Old Testament law, and then there's a New Testament covenant of blood. Then the testimony of John the Baptist and others, we know that Jesus is the Christ, and then we have the baptism of Jesus, and that Jesus is called the Lamb of God, and we have the first four disciples out of 12. That's what's contained in the first chapter of John. Do you have any questions? Anybody have any doubt about the deity of Christ? You do? Yeah. Okay, we just read that the disciples understood Jesus when he's talking about Elijah came and they did what they wanted to with him, right? Although his name was John, he was the forerunner. And it's prophesied in Malachi that the forerunner is supposed to come before the Messiah. Okay, we already know that reincarnation is not part of Scripture, right? Wait, hold on. Uh, I need to make sure we establish that. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. So there's no do-overs. Okay? Hinduism is not true. We don't keep on repeating. And so <clears throat> the only explanation you have, if Jesus calls John the Baptist Elijah, then we just read that. He calls him Elijah. Well, he came in the spirit of Elijah. And he was the forerunner to the first coming of the Messiah. It's just, as I said before, God set up the universe to be eternal. Just in case. Now, he already knew, but he gave us the chance. We will never explore the entire universe. And I think that was originally God's plan, that we were supposed to inhabit the universe. Yeah. Not quite. Because he's not Elijah, Elijah. He's just completing the work of Elijah. In other words, he's continuing and completing the work of Elijah. Because he's baptizing. Uh, I mean, it's, there's so much to it, but do you, you're not getting it? No, I... I you know, when, there, when Elijah showed up in the Old Testament, there's only a couple of times where you had the miracles taking place. Uh, we know that Elijah was one of those. And we know that Moses was another. That these miracles were just incredible. And then Elisha, who came after Elijah, he was also blessed with a double portion. And Elijah was one tough prophet. I mean, before John the Baptist, it would have been Elijah that was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus basically tells the disciples that he is Elijah. He doesn't even use a similitude. He doesn't say John was like Elijah. He says, John, if you can accept it, John was Elijah. Now, when Elijah comes, he will restore all things. Now, it's like when we get saved. We are saved but not all the way yet, right? Well, Elijah comes and the process of restoring all things has begun, right? Because God set up his church and that's going to be who he uses in the millennial reign and is going to be the bride of Christ forever. 
And so the ministry of Elijah has begun. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to have this forerunner again. We already know two prophets show up. We don't know exactly who they are. I'm convinced personally that it is going to be at least Elijah. I don't know about the other two, about Enoch and Moses. If I had to guess, I would say probably Moses because you have the same plagues with Moses in the Old Testament show up in the book of Revelation. And so that that's a hint, but he died, so I don't know. I can't be sure about that. So, I mean, what would have happened, and there was a transition period, I think we talked about it, where Jesus, remember when we went through the Beatitudes, the Pharisees had a point where it clicked, and they said, we're rejecting you as the Messiah. And once that clicked, then he withdrew his ministry and it was more for individuals and it was more for the disciples. But John the Baptist was still there just in case they did accept him. Not that he knew that they weren't, or that he, I'm sure he probably did, but it's this idea, God set it up just in case. Otherwise, how do you explain the universe? The whole universe is out there and it would have been eternal, but the law of entropy comes in and now it's all going to decay. We're all subject to the fall. The entire universe is subject to the fall, what took place here on earth with Adam and his wife. Those two blew it for everybody, but God set it up to be eternal just in case. Now that's without argument, I believe, because then the fall came in. Well, the same thing with John the Baptist. He set it up just in case. Again, I don't know what would have happened, but it is truly, he is the forerunner to Christ, but in the uh, book of Revelation, I believe Elijah comes. Now, as far as being dogmatic, can I be dogmatic on this? Well, no, but he is the forerunner to Christ. I, I do know that he is going to precede Christ, and he's going to restore all things, and that's when it will be fully restored. It's like we're saved now, but not yet fully. We don't have our bodies. John the Baptist came, and he was a forerunner, but not yet fully. But when he does come, it will restore all things. And so that's the reasoning behind it. Now, there's other commentators that hold to that. I just lean in that direction. Now, if you want to say John the Baptist wasn't Elijah, I think that's false. Scripture clearly declares it. Do I believe that he will come at the end? I think according to Malachi chapter 3, yeah, he will. I don't know if that helps. I think I just poked a bunch of holes. And, you know. Well, in Malachi 2, it says, and he will restore all things. It's like there's a predicate to that. Elijah will show up, and he will restore all things. If you look at uh, the coming of Christ, you know, he is supposed to come, and he's going to be cut off, and he's going to come again, you know. So you see where God does that a couple of times where he interrupts what he says he's going to do. Or even in the middle of a prophecy, he will... Like in, you go to um, Matthew chapter 24 and there's things that happen in Matthew 24 that are at the time of Jesus, but it's hard to differentiate, well, what happens at the time of Jesus and what happens in the end times? And you really have to dig through to figure what's going on in Matthew chapter 24 and also in the gospel of Luke and Mark chapter 13. All of those things are tough to puzzle together. And so there are these jumps. There are these gaps that can take place. And so that's why clearly... John the Baptist was the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then you have, I believe, Elijah showing up at the end times. But, you know, we'll view it from heaven. So, other questions, comments? It's not related to tonight, I guess, but if we happen to die before the millennial reign, are we going to be on hold for a thousand years or are we going to be here? We are going to be resurrected with new bodies and we will come back with Christ, all of his saints, to rule and reign with Christ. 
You'll probably get Puerto Rico. That's good. All right. Other questions? Okay, John chapter 2 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, And when things aren't always clear for us, we know that you bring clarity. Father, I pray that you would uh, just expand your word in our minds, that we'd be able to understand it more clearly and take in its true meaning, what the consequences are to these words that we read. And help us to be about your business and sharing this information with others that there is a world that most will not go to heaven. And we understand that. Your word says that. And so, Father, prepare us to give an answer for those who seek after one. And may we do so with gentleness and respect. In Jesus' name, amen.